Exodus chapter 23. And I'd like to read verses 14 through 17 as our opening text. Exodus 23, beginning at verse 14. Celebrate a festival in honor, in my honor, three times a year. Observe the festival of unleavened bread, as I commanded you. You are to eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abia, because you came out of Egypt in that month. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. Also observe the festival of harvest with the first fruits of your produce from what you sow in the field, and observe the festival of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather your produce from the field. Three times a year, all your males are to appear before the sovereign Yahweh. Yahweh bless his word to our hearts today. So next week is Pentecost, as we understand and keep it here at this assembly. Sometimes Pentecost gets left out, both in general knowledge and in feast keeping. Um, in Torah communities, it is observed, but there's usually not as much effort that is placed or excitement in the congregation about Pentecost. And it might just be, I thought about this this past week, it might just be because Pentecost is basically a one-day festival, even though the way we observe it, it's right at the new moon always. But by itself, it's a one-day festival, and unleavened bread and tabernacles are seven-day festivals. So maybe that's why they get a little bit more attention. But also it could be because some of the things that are commanded to be done on Pentecost can't really be fully done by us today. As a pastor or a teacher at this assembly, I believe it's my obligation to proclaim to everybody these festivals as they roll around each year. I don't always teach on them every year, but I do mention them before they get here to remind us of their approach. Pentecost is just as much of a commanded feast as Passover or as the Feast of Tabernacles. And I want to make sure that everyone understands the significance of Pentecost. So today I'm going to give an overview lesson, and I hope that you leave with a better grasp of this feast than when you came. There's four basic points I want to cover. The first one is the names, the various names of this feast. Uh, the second one is what is this feast a memorial of. The third is the sacrifices that are commanded to be offered during this feast. And then last, the rejoicing and the gift that is brought to this feast. The first thing I want to look at is the names for this feast. This feast has more names assigned to it than any feast in the Bible. Four names to be exact. In our opening text, we read about the three appointed festivals. And the one in the middle in Exodus 23 is called the Festival or the Feast of Harvest. As it mentions the first fruits of produce from what you sow in the field. Turn with me to Exodus 34. In Exodus 34 verses 18 through 24, there's a parallel text. We won't read the entire thing. It basically reiterates what we just read in Exodus 23. But when it gets to the festival of harvest, in Exodus 34 verse 22, it calls it something different. It says in 34 and 22 of Exodus, Observe the festival of weeks with the first fruits of the wheat harvest. It's 
the first part of verse 22. We learn here that the feast is called the Festival of Weeks. It's the second feast of the three in the year. And the first fruits that it is spoken of back in Exodus 23 is specified as the first fruits of the harvest of wheat in Exodus 34. Numbers chapter 28 calls this feast the day of first fruits. So that makes three names Festival of Harvest, Festival of Weeks, Day of First Fruits. Festival of Harvest and Day of First Fruits both refer to the wheat harvest. The Festival of Weeks, that name, it does not refer to the actual time that the feast is kept but it refers to the weeks that are counted up to this feast from the time of Passover. You'll find this in Leviticus 23.15 where we are commanded after Passover to count seven weeks or seven Sabbaths. The fourth name given to this feast in Scripture is Pentecost, and that is the name that ends up being predominantly known in Christianity. And I think it's because of its use in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is a well-known text in Christianity as a whole. In Acts 2 verse 1 it says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, that's the King James Version, the Darby translation says, And when the days of Pentecost were accomplished, what this shows in Acts 2 is that Pentecost was a well-understood name before Brother Luke wrote the book of Acts because when he writes the name Pentecost, he writes it in a way that he expects everybody to understand. So this was called Pentecost prior to the timing of the book of Acts. The word Pentecost is a Greek word, basically an English word, but it comes from the Greek language. And it's a transliteration, letter for letter, of the Greek word Pentecoste. And Pentecoste means 50. And we transliterate that as Pentecost into English. It's used three times in the New Testament. Uh, twice in the book of Acts, here, Acts 2, Acts 20, and then once in 1 Corinthians 16. Now, we don't find the word Pentecost being used in Hebrew Scripture, obviously, because it's a Greek word. It's not a Hebrew word. But we do find the word Pentecoste used in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. But it's not used for this feast it's used in Leviticus 25, 10 through 11 to talk about the year of Jubilee, which is the 50th year after the seven sabbatical years, 49 and then the 50th year. And it's used in 2 Kings 15 to speak of the year 50 in the reign of a king. So it's never used in the Greek Septuagint for this feast that I'm talking about today. So sometime between the building of the second temple in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, and the historical account in Acts chapter 2, sometime during that period, the word Pentecost came to be used as an additional name, a fourth name for this festival, on top of the other three names that are given in the Torah. I did find this week that the word Pentecost is used as a name for this feast in the books that are commonly called the Apocrypha or the Deuterocanon. The book of Tobit, chapter 2, verse 1, uses Pentecost for this feast. And the book of 2 Maccabees, chapter 12, verse 32, uses the name Pentecost for this feast. So each of these four names centers in on a specific aspect of the feast. Pentecost refers back to Leviticus 23, where after we're commanded to count seven weeks from Passover, we're also commanded to number 50 days. So the term weeks, or the Hebrew word Shavuot, 
refers to the counting of the weeks up to the feast. And the Greek term Pentecoste refers to the numbering of the days, 50 days. And this goes for both the short counters, what I'm going to call the short counters and the long counters. What I mean is that most feast-keeping groups, when you talk to most feast-keeping groups, they will count seven weeks after Passover or sometime around Passover, and then they'll number one day. Some groups count seven Saturday Sabbaths. Some groups just count seven periods of seven, just 49 days, and keep Pentecost on any day of the Gregorian week. So there's variation in counting even among the short counters, and as peacekeepers always seem to have something to disagree on, right? But that's the short counters. Now, we're in this congregation, we're the minority. We would take the minority position, and I'm going to call us the long counters because our count lasts longer than theirs. We would number seven weeks or Sabbaths after Passover and then number 50 days. But my point here is whether you count seven weeks plus one day or seven weeks plus 50 days, you still have the name Pentecost being separate from the name weeks. That is because seven weeks does not equal 50 days. There's two different names for two different counts. Even if you number seven weeks in one day, still two different counts. So the two names, weeks and Pentecost, stem from these two counts. My next point is what this feast is a memorial of. This centers on what are we commemorating when Pentecost comes about? And this has been a question that's been asked for a long time. People often wonder this because both Passover slash unleavened bread, which that's really the same thing. Passover kicks off unleavened bread. So that feast and tabernacles in the fall, they commemorate something. They commemorate aspects of what? Leaving the land of Egypt, deliverance from the land of Egypt, from bondage for the Israelites. Unleavened bread centers in on the fact that they had to make their dough or their bread quickly, uh, eat unleavened bread. Uh, Tabernacle centers in on how they had to dwell in temporary shelters in the wilderness. Same feast, two different aspects, two different commemorations. What about Pentecost? There's no direct scriptural text that gives us the answer here. However, for a very long time, like thousands of years, it has been understood traditionally that Pentecost commemorates the giving of the Torah, the codification of the law, the writing down of the law that was given to Prophet Moshe. And this stems from a fine reading of Exodus chapters 12 all the way up to Exodus chapter 32. Now remember when the Ten Commandments were given in Exodus 20? After that, Yahweh continues to speak His law in Exodus 21, 22, and 23, and he speaks it to Moses, all these commands, and then Moses relays them to the people. In Exodus 24, Moses begins to relay all these commandments to the people. Moses goes up on the mountain, which is an ascension. I want you to remember that. I'm going to come back to that. Moses goes up on the mountain, which is an ascension. I'm going to call it right now to heaven. Because when Moses goes up on top of the mountain in Exodus 24, he enters into this cloud and it's like Yahweh comes down, Moses goes up, and Yahweh allows prophet Moses to enter into heaven. And he lets him take a look around the heavenly sanctuary. And he tells him, you build the earthly sanctuary according to the pattern that I'm showing you up here on the mountain. So there's an ascension 
by Moses. And in Exodus 25, through verse, all the way through chapter 31, Yahweh gives him instructions on how to build the tabernacle and how to carry out the priesthood. And he's showing them all these things in the heavenly sanctuary, which I believe really exists, and that there's a tabernacle and a temple. And I could go into that, but I don't want to get off on a rabbit trail. At the end of these instructions, Yahweh gives Moses the two stones that he wrote the Ten Commandments on in Exodus 31.18. And that concludes Moses' 40-day fast. He didn't eat bread or drink water while he was with Yahweh. And the only way that that's possible is for Yahweh to supernaturally sustain Prophet Moses. Now, track with me here. The Israelites were delivered at Passover in Exodus 12. That was the first month, the month of Abib, when they came out of Egypt. In Exodus 16, if we keep reading, it talks about the second month, in the middle of the month, on the 15th day, and it mentions, it begins to mention the giving of the manna. And then in Exodus 19, it mentions the third month, and it mentions the middle of the month because it says in the third month, on the same day that the children of Israel came out of the wilderness, or came out of the land of Egypt, they came to the mountain. So we're midways through the third month, and then there's some days that lapse because there's three days of sanctification, and then there's some days in Exodus 24 that go by. And then there's 40 days, Moses up on the mountain, and Yahweh gives him the two stones with the commandments on them. And then in Exodus 32, before we read about Moses coming down off the mountain or making a descension from where he ascended, we read that Aaron the priest, Moses' brother, he makes a proclamation and he says, tomorrow is going to be a feast to Yahweh. And he uses the technical word for a pilgrim feast. And he was not rebuked for his proclamation of that feast. And really, when you study it in depth, even the golden calf there, it was a transgression of the law. It was a sin. But the Israelites were not trying to worship another mighty one. They were trying to take what they had learned in Egypt and apply it to their mighty one. They made the calf as a representation of Yahweh, his strength and his might. And they were rebuked for making the golden calf on Yahweh's appointed time. Now today, we're about a week away from Pentecost, so we're approaching that same time on the scriptural calendar. So next week will be after Passover, roughly about 100 days. And we'll be before Tabernacles, about 75 days next week. How many times a year were all the males to appear before Yahweh? Three times a year. By the way, the reason it says the males is because the men were... Israel was a patriarchal society. The men were the heads of their homes. It did not mean that the women and children weren't there at the feast. You can read about this in Deuteronomy. I think it's chapter 31 where it says they would read the Torah in the ears of all the women and children and they would read the Torah on the sabbatical year at what feast? The Feast of Tabernacles. So males just stands for the heads of the homes. So there's three times in the year. So if we're next week, we're 100 days after Passover and 75 days before tabernacles, that only leaves one feast left. Pentecost, Feast of Harvest, Day of first fruits. So the law had to have been given to Moses verbally late in the third month, but physically, the two stones or the two cubes of the covenant, physically it was given to Moses late in the fourth month. And this is why traditionally this feast has been understood as commemorating the giving of the Torah 
from Yahweh to Prophet Moshe. Now, even the short counters that I mentioned earlier, even they recognize this. They recognize this. I just don't think that their count aligns best with all the information in Scripture. Now, think about this with Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, there's a parallel with the giving of the Holy Spirit on, guess what, Pentecost, and it's given by prophet Yeshua. Now, a lot of people don't realize this, but just as Yahweh, the Father, used prophet Moshe to give the Torah at Pentecost, Yahweh used prophet Yeshua to give the Spirit at Pentecost. It was not Yahweh that gave the Spirit to men and women in Acts chapter 2. It was the Messiah. Just as Moshe had to ascend on top of the mountain into heaven, so to speak, to get and give the gift of the Torah and bring it down, so did Yeshua have to ascend to heaven into the presence of Yahweh to give the gift of the Spirit. Acts 2 verse 32. There's his ascension to heaven in both cases and the gift of the Torah, the gift of the law, is parallel to the gift of the Spirit because the law and the Spirit is not contrary to one another. Ezekiel 36 says the Spirit is given to enable the keeping of the law so that Yahweh would cause us to obey His commandments. And Yahweh uses two greatest prophets to do it. Yeshua being number one and Moses being number two. So in Acts chapter 2, catch this, when the days of Pentecost were accomplished and they were all together in one mind and in one place, it was not Pentecost Sunday. It wasn't Pentecost Sunday. As you see in many modern Christian churches who don't really understand all of this, what it was was a very Hebraic Old, Old Testament festival. Jews and proselytes from every nation under heaven were there in Jerusalem, Acts 2 verse 5. Why were they there? Because they obeyed the law that we read in Exodus 23 and Exodus 34 because at that time Yahweh had His name placed in Jerusalem and that's where all the Israelites would come to celebrate the festival, if at all possible. They would make a pilgrimage three times a year to Jerusalem. So they were there to obey the command in the Torah to keep the second of the three major feasts. So Acts chapter 2 doesn't have anything to do with a Pentecostal church service. has nothing to do with that. But it has everything to do with the Torah and the Torah-observing Israelites coming together to keep a command of Yahweh. So on Pentecost, we remember the giving of the law through prophet Moses and the giving of the Spirit through the Messiah. The giving of the Spirit in Acts 2 was done in a special way through the gift of tongues or the gift of languages which enabled the good news about Yeshua to spread quickly to all the different languages and dialects spoken by Jews and proselytes around the known world. That was the reason for the gift of languages. As a matter of fact, if you study this out, Acts 2 is actually a reversal of Genesis 11. In Genesis 11, Yahweh confused the languages at what we call the Tower of Babel. Babel means confusion or confounding. But in Acts 2, He took away that confusion and allowed each man to understand the apostles as they were given the gift of tongues and they spoke in languages that everybody could understand and even dialects. And He did that so the gospel would spread out very quickly. Praise Yahweh for the memorial of the giving of the law and the Spirit. Thirdly, the third thing I want to talk about in this overview is the sacrifices. The sacrifices that are commanded for this feast, they're listed in Leviticus 23, 
16 through 21. We won't read them, but you can read about them in Leviticus 23, 16 through 21. There were animal sacrifices. There were drink offerings. There were grain offerings. There were two loaves of bread that were waved, made from the first fruits of the wheat harvest. The special offerings or sacrifices take place on Pentecost because it's a special day. People are so scared to death of animal sacrifices. People think that there's some kind of crazy, outdated cult ritual. And it's simply because people haven't taken the time to study what the Bible teaches about animal sacrifices. What they were is they were gifts brought by the worshipers to the Creator. Israel was an agrarian society that planted gardens and raised livestock. And often when Yahweh would bless them with a good crop or a lot of livestock, they would give back to Yahweh. Because anytime Yahweh gives to us, we're supposed to take a portion and give it back to Him. Amen? Because He's the one that we get our wealth from. So these sacrifices were brought as gifts. And most of the animal sacrifices were edible. They were eaten by the worshipers. And some were eaten by the priests. The sin offering and the guilt offering usually were eaten by the priests. But the grain offering and the fellowship offerings, they were eaten by the worshipers. So we'd come together and offer a sacrifice, kind of like what we do at Passover. And we eat the animal. And we share in the meal. The offerings that were given... At Pentecost were the new grain, the wheat from that year's harvest, and that was given in the form of two loaves of bread that were made from fine flour and yeast. There were also seven unblemished male lambs, yearlings, one bull and two rams as burnt offerings. A burnt offering is the offering of ascension. Uh, the burnt offering was not eaten by anybody. It would be like, and this is not a perfect illustration, but when I tell people about this or talk to people about it, it would be like you take a $100 bill and you set it on fire. You gain nothing from it. You give it fully away. And the animal was cut up properly. The hide was buried and the blood was buried and then the meat and the insides, all the fat was burned on the altar to Yahweh and the Bible says it was a pleasing aroma to Yahweh. And oftentimes I think about how that if you pass by a good barbecue and you smell the aroma and you say that smells like it's good. We've got the owner of Get Smoked Barbecue sitting back in the back here with us today. Owners and operators. <laughs> Praise Yahweh. How many's enjoyed some of that good barbecue from Brother McCord and Sister Danae? They've been a blessing to our family and many, I believe. But I think that's what Yahweh means. Some people think it could be metaphorical. Pleasing aroma means Yahweh appreciates you being obedient. I think metaphorical and literal. I think Yahweh likes to smell good food cooking too. I know we don't often think of Him like that, but I believe that's what the Scripture means in part. Then, there is also one male goat offered as a sin offering and two male lambs as a fellowship offering. The sin offering was eaten by the priest the male lambs could be eaten by the priest and the worshipers, including the stranger that joined Israel or the widow and the orphan. Yahweh was very particular. He said, when you come to my feast, you make sure to share your tithe with the Levites, the priests, with the widows and the orphans and the strangers. Make sure don't leave the little people 
the people that might get looked over, don't leave them out. I don't call them little people in a derogatory way. I'm just saying sometimes those people can get glanced over. Basically what Yahweh is saying is, watch out for everybody at the feast. Everybody needs to rejoice. And the poor or the widow or the orphan or the stranger, they may not have as much as you do to bring, but when they come, share. Just give it all away. Share everything at the feast. The priest would wave the lambs, the fellowship offerings, and he would wave them with the loaves of bread, and all of this was holy to Yahweh. Now these are some of the things, some of these things we don't do not because, this is important, not because they're not commanded anymore. That's not why we don't do them. We don't do them because our current situation doesn't allow them to be done correctly. We've read it time and time again. Permanent statute. Keep this forever. There's no way that Israel could have heard those things and thought they would ever become outdated. These things carry on as long as the heavens and the earth remain. Matthew 5, 17-19. Our current situation doesn't allow every single command in the law to be done correctly. Think about this in relation to somebody like Daniel who lived in Babylon or the Israelites who were carried captive into Babylon. They served Yahweh the best that they could. They didn't forsake the Torah, but that does not mean that they could do everything commanded in the Torah while they lived in Babylon. For example... The festivals are never said to be observed in Babylon by the Israelites. At least not fully. The captive Israelites surely remembered the feast when they rolled around on the calendar. And they may have done some small things familially or with a small group. But the feast could not be kept properly or to the same extent as they did while they were safe in their own land. Now some feast keepers today do bake two loaves of bread in commemoration of the two loaves commanded. I plan on doing that for next week. And of course we hold a festival meal to commemorate all of the food and the drink along with the sacrifices. In the future, according to the Bible, in the future these feasts will be kept in the kingdom. Sometimes we call it the stage of the kingdom called the Millennium Kingdom. You can read about it in the Prophets. All of these aspects will be restored. All of these laws will be followed fully and carefully as the refined Levite priesthood performs their duties in the earthly temple at the second coming of Yeshua. But for now, we do the best that we can. And we obey everything that we have the ability to obey. I've said this before, but this is something that bears to be repeated. When you read the Bible, the way that you know if a commandment is for you is if when you read that commandment, you have the ability to be obedient to it. If you do, that commandment's for you. Go ahead and do it. If you haven't been doing it, just repent and ask Yahweh to forgive you. He loves us. He's merciful with us. He's slow to anger. He's quick to forgive. Ask Yahweh to forgive you. Say, I'm going to implement this in my life. I talked with a... Man, was it a couple? I talked with somebody recently and it reminded me of TJ and Kim, a conversation we had a long time ago, but they were, it was a, it was a brother in Ohio and they raised the chickens and they had never, they're fairly new to the Torah about two years in and they had never read the law about burying the blood. And he said that after they did their big slaughter, hundreds of chickens, then they kept Shabbat. And they read that law about you must cover up the blood, you must bury the blood. And he looked at his wife and he said, there's no coincidence that we haven't been doing this, but we read it today, so next time they're going to make the correction. That's what Yahweh wants. 
That's what Yahweh wants. He knows that we're human. He knows that we make mistakes. He knows we don't know everything overnight. But He wants a willing heart to be obedient to Him. He wants a willing heart. People oftentimes have tried to get me, so to speak, when I talk to people that are really against the law. And they try to get me and they say, well, I'm going to find a law that you don't obey. And I always say, good. If you find one, I'm not going to argue with it. I'll just admit that I don't obey it and I want to work on my life so that I can be more obedient and love Yahweh more because that's how we love Yahweh, to keep His commandments. So you're not going to get me. You're just going to make me repent. And that's a good thing. Yahweh loves repentance. We do the best we can. My last thing today that I want to talk about, fourth aspect of this feast. We went over the various names of the feast, what the feast is a memorial of, We've went over the sacrifices of the feast. And now we're going to go over the rejoicing and the gifts at the feast. Now this is interesting because I read the Bible a lot. And I've read this text in Deuteronomy 16. Let's turn there. I've read this text many times, but it did not jump out at me before like it did this past week as I was studying for this teaching, for this lesson. Deuteronomy chapter 16 is another chapter that is comparable to Leviticus 23. Now, Leviticus 23 is the most detailed chapter about the feasts, the appointed times in the whole Bible. Deuteronomy 16 has a lot of details in it, but it's not as exhaustive as Leviticus. But both of them contain things that the other one doesn't. And what we do is we don't camp out on one or the other. We study them and let them dovetail together and we obey all of the instructions to the best of our ability out of a love for our Father. Deuteronomy 16, 9-12. Listen to this. You are to count seven weeks, counting the weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. That goes back to Leviticus 23. Verse 10. You are to celebrate the festival of weeks to Yahweh your Mighty One with a free will offering that you give in proportion to to how Yahweh your Mighty One has blessed you. That's the part I never noticed. Specifically, this is said about Pentecost. Once again, you are to celebrate the festival of weeks to Yahweh your Mighty One with a free will offering that you give in proportion to how Yahweh your Mighty One has blessed you. That's talking about material and financial blessings. Now, I know we, at least I, have shied away from that in the past because it's abused so much in Christianity. And we in the Torah community say, well, blessings are more than finances or material things. And that's true. How many know our health is our wealth, right? We're blessed with good health. We're blessed with a good wife or good children or a good husband for you sisters. We're blessed in many different ways. But the Bible does speak often of blessings financially and materially. This has to be one of them because the Israelites were agrarians. So when it says they were blessed by Yahweh and you give at the feast in proportion to how Yahweh blessed you, he's talking about how Yahweh blessed you in what? Your harvest and your livestock. And it would also include other occupations or jobs that you might have. Verse 11 says, Rejoice before Yahweh your Mighty One in the place where He chooses to have His name dwell. You, your son and daughter, your male and female slave, the Levite within your gates, as well as the foreign resident, the fatherless and the widow among you. He said, don't leave anybody out. Anybody that has joined to Israel, 
Don't leave them out when they come to the feast. They want to have just as much a good time as you. Verse 12, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Carefully follow these statutes. So Yahweh is saying, bring your servants to the feast and let them rejoice. And remember, you were servants once in Egypt. And you were mistreated and you're not supposed to treat your servants the way that the Egyptians treated you. There's a message in that. I really like how the ERV, I have a translation on my phone called the ERV. You know what it stands for? Easy to read version. (laughs) That's really for real. I'm not making that up. But I like it a lot. Listen how it translates verse 10. Then celebrate the festival of harvest to Yahweh your mighty one. Do this by bringing him some special gift you want to bring. Decide how much to give by thinking about how much Yahweh your mighty one has blessed you. So you think about how much has he blessed me since last feast or last Pentecost. How much has he blessed me? And then you give in proportion to how Yahweh has blessed you at the feast. Now you can do this in many forms. You can you could cook the best meal with the finest ingredients you can find. Bring it to the feast for all to share. You might bring the best meat that you can buy, the best chocolate you can buy. Brother Matthew, you like chocolate? I love chocolate. I don't eat a whole lot of it now that we do keto. (laughs) But I love chocolate. You might bring the best of whatever it is that Yahweh allows in His law. You might give to somebody in the congregation who has less or who has fallen on hard times. For the poor we will always have with us. Deuteronomy 15 verse 11. You might give a special offering to the assembly as a whole and buy something that the assembly needs or could use to better our time here or for the benefit of everybody for many years to come because Yahweh's will will still be doing this 50 years from now. That's my prayer and my hope here at this place. There are so many ways you can appear before Yahweh with full hands. He says in Exodus 23, Exodus 34... Deuteronomy 16, no one shall appear with empty hands. Come with full hands. These are just a few ways that we can give. Yahweh blesses us so much throughout the year. I know that sometimes we struggle. Struggles are good because they teach us lessons. Struggles are good. Hard times are good. They teach us lessons. Some years are better than others financially or materially. But this gift in Deuteronomy 16 is based on how Yahweh has blessed you this year. And surely He has blessed you some way. Surely He has blessed you some way. He does not put a strain on us. He's such a good Father. Yahweh's not asking you to give what you don't have. He's only asking you to give in proportion to how He's blessed you. And this is talking about financial and material blessings. So it's talking about financial and material giving. My dad had many sayings when I was a kid growing up. Anybody else's dad had many sayings? (laughs) One of my dad's sayings was, Son, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Probably some of y'all's dad said that. Sometimes we live life and we have so many blessings come our way, yet we don't plan properly for Yahweh's feasts. We work so much, six days a week. I figured it up today, and this is just rough figures, but overall in a year's time, we have roughly 290 days to work. And if we count all of the Sabbaths 
and the new moons, and if we count all seven days of each feast of unleavened bread and tabernacles, we have about 75 days that Yahweh says, set everything aside and come before me and worship me and study my law and fellowship with the brothers and the sisters in the faith. 75 days out of the year, Yahweh says, do that. And he says, you can get 290 days to do what you want to do. That's rough figures. Yet when his feasts roll around, basically, we're talking about annual feasts, basically two weeks, Passover and Tabernacles, and then one day at Pentecost, a lot of times we don't put in the effort we should because we fail to plan like we should. And if we fail to plan, we plan to fail. We haven't planned or put back. And then when the feast gets here, we feel like we'll have to do without if we give a gift at the feast. Listen, saints, who I love, brothers and sisters, my family, who I love. Yahweh will never, ever let you do without when you put Him first. When you put Yahweh first, He puts you first. When you get serious with Yahweh, He gets serious with you. When we give to Yahweh in any of those ways that I mentioned, when you do that, it will be given back to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. And that's the neat thing about this. When you give, you always have more to give next time. Because Yahweh keeps blessing you continually. Because He sees you don't hoard up what you have. You give it away. You give away your wealth and you end up with more wealth. Big givers are always blessed financially and materially. You watch. Big givers are always blessed financially and materially. Do I sound, do I sound too much like a TV preacher? <laughs> I'm not trying to be a TV preacher, but even a blind squirrel can catch an acorn every now and then. Brother Arnold told me that the other day. <laughs> oh, I'm not trying to sound like a TV preacher. I don't like TV preachers. I'm just trying to speak in line with this. That's all I'm trying to do. I'm speaking in line with this. Deuteronomy 16.10 Celebrate the Yahweh with a free will offering that you give in proportion to how Yahweh has blessed you. So, I'm not trying to get you to give to me. I'll be giving at the feast just as, just as I'm teaching you to give. I'm not asking anybody for an offering. I'm not planning on taking up an offering for me or a love offering or anything like that. I'm asking you to give a gift at Yahweh's feast. Don't appear before Yahweh empty-handed. Come with full hands. Let me end here by giving you some kind of pattern to follow in your life. I'm not saying everybody has to do this exactly the same way, but this will give you an idea of how to give so that when the feast roll around, you don't have to appear empty-handed. A lot of good brothers and sisters that I know and love practice something like this, and when the feast comes, they always have a great amount to give. So what I do is throughout the week when I earn pay, when I earn money, I set aside 10% of what I earn and I dedicate that to, to Yahweh's work as an offering to Yahweh. And I usually split that up, not always, but usually I split it up in three different ways. And I, a lot of times I'll save it up before I give, but I'll give... Out of that 10%, I'll give one-third of that to somebody that's poor or somebody in need. I'll give one-third of that to our assembly. I'll put it back there in the offering box. And then I'll save one-third for the feast. And I've got 
little envelopes at the house that I put that particular amount of money in. And if I'm able to put in more than that, especially if Yahweh blesses me with a good week at work or a good job where I end up making more than I thought I was going to make, I put a little bit extra in that feast envelope or I give a little bit extra to the poor. I put in extra because I know that when the feast comes, I want to give back to Yahweh because Yahweh's been so good to me. So generous. He's been so generous to me. For many years, Yahweh has blessed me with good health, a wonderful wife, beautiful children, financial blessings, safety, a good home, good piece of land, good animals, good chicken eggs. He's blessed me in so many ways. How can I not bless Him back when His feast comes? I don't believe I could ever repay Yahweh I don't think I could, but he does tell me this is a way you can give to me by not appearing empty-handed at the feast. So I do it with joy and I rejoice. And that's a commandment there. You can see in Deuteronomy 16, he says rejoice at the feast. We'll be celebrating Pentecost next week. We'll have our regular service and then afterwards we'll keep rejoicing with food and drink and fellowship and smiles and laughter. Pentecost only happens one time a year so you won't have the opportunity to be obedient to any of these commandments in the law that I mentioned today until it rolls around again next year. All of Yahweh's feasts are special. I just think Pentecost sometimes get the shorthand because it's just one day instead of a whole week like unleavened bread and tabernacles. I hope that this lesson will help us all to give this feast more effort than ever before. I love everybody here, and I pray that Yahweh blesses us all to be more obedient to His Word.